from the Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where each episode we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to the youth of Alaska. I'm senior ATME producer Sam Burnitz, and in this episode we talk to two prominent voices in the discussion surrounding the roadless rural in the Tongass National Forest. Robert Venables, the executive director for Southeast Conference, and Dan Cannon, the former Tongass Forest Program Manager at the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. In 2001, the roadless rule was set up to protect 50 million acres of national forests. The Tongass National Forest, located in Southeast Alaska, is the largest national forest in the United States at 16.7 million acres. As of October 28, 2020, 9.3 million acres of the Tongass were no longer protected by the roadless rule, opening it up for things like road construction and logging. Here's Joel Jackson, the president of the organized village of Cake, talking about protecting his ancestral homeland in a video produced by Earth Justice in Audubon, Alaska. We've lived with the effects of logging, full-scale industrial logging. Our forests are just now healing My ancestors walked on that land. And if my voice gets loud, it's because I'm that passionate about what's going on here. You know, we have a place that is like no place else. It's special to us because our ancestors lived here. They walked on the very grounds that we do. And they go out there and they fished and uh, hunted in those areas that we still hunt today. The forest is very important. You can go out there and gather what you need to survive. It's our food security. In this first interview, ATME producer Riley Taylor talks to Dan Cannon the former Tongass Forest Program Manager at the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. They spoke on November 4th, 2020. Can you kind of paint me a picture of what the Tongass Forest is like or looks like? Yeah, so the the Tongass uh, is the largest national forest in the United States at 17 million acres. Uh, it's a rich landscape covered in glacier-carved fjords, thick green forest of old-growth hemlock, spruce, and cedar, spongy carpets of muskeg, and expansive fields of rocks and glaciers. And it really is a place that people should see before they die. That sounds beautiful. It is. Can you explain what the roadless rule is and how it relates to the Tongass? And also, how much land does it cover? Yeah. So. Um, The roadless rule is a federal safeguard that restricts logging and road building on roughly 58 million acres of the National Forest Service lands across the entire country. It was adopted during the Clinton administration in 2001 after one of the most extensive public comment uh, processes that this in the history of federal rulemaking. Uh, There was more than 1.6 million people commented on the process. Um, And so the rule was implemented in 2001, and it included the Tongass National Forest. And um, of the 17 million acres, about 55% of the forest is 
protected by rural this rural protections. Uh, so it's something like 9.3 million acres is protected by the rural this rule. That said, those 9.3 million acres are no longer protected by the rural this rule because the Trump administration removed rural this rule protections from the Tongass National Forest. What is the local perception or feeling about this issue? Yeah, so a little bit more about the rural rule. It's it's definitely one of the smartest and most popular land management policies out there. So when it was first introduced, it was both about conservation, you know, protecting critical wildlife habitat, clean water sources, uh, you know, prized public recreation areas, but it was also about saving money. Uh, so you have to look at the maintenance backlog that the Forest Service currently has. And it's currently around something like $3 billion. Uh, so when the Clinton administration put it in place, they said, well, this is about conservation, but it's also about saving money for US taxpayers and allowing us to focus on maintaining the already existing infrastructure on our national forest land. And the Tongass, uh, it's $68 million maintenance backlog log just for the roads the existing road infrastructure. Um, so the sentiment here locally is that the rule this rule has been in place since about 2001, uh, give or take some years where it was exempted and then it was reapplied. But for the most part, it's been in place and it's working for Alaskans. Uh, and we really saw this during the Alaska rule this rule making process. During the public comment period, you saw overwhelming support from the general public and Alaskans in favor of keeping roadless rule protections on the Tongass. So for example, Southeast Alaskans, a lot of Southeast Alaskans rely on the Tongass to forage, hunt, fish, and put food on the tables for their family. And close to 200 uh, subsistence users actually came out to public meetings, 18 public meetings across Southeast Alaska. And the large majority of those people that rely on the Tongass to feed their families said, these protections are important. These are critical uh, protections for the wildlife that we need to feed our families. So whether that's Sitka black-tailed deer or whether that's uh, key salmon spawning streams, um, Alaskan subsistence uh, users said, these protections are important. Uh, and you saw um, similar support from commercial fishermen, you saw uh, similar support from the Alaska natives across the region. Uh, so generally, it's it's very popular. Who it's not popular with is uh, the Alaska delegation and the state of Alaska. And what do you think will be the impacts to the Tongass when the industry opens up? Yeah, so now that the world is rule protections are no longer on the Tongass. What, we're, what, we've, see, what we've seen is that 9.37 million acres are now available to uh, have roads for logging built. And roads means a large industrial scale, uh, old growth clear cut logging could take place. Now, a lot would have to happen before that actually happens. There would have to be a timber sale and the timber sale would have to go through the National Environmental Policy Act process. Um, where there would be public input, et cetera. But I think one of the biggest impact is the removing the roadless rule protections. In doing that, the Forest Service identified 
168,000 acres of old growth that was previously listed as not suitable for timber. And now those areas are immediately listed as, as suitable timber acres. Uh, so that's 168,000 acres of you know, pristine old growth habitat that is critical for wildlife and, and salmon streams that can now um, be added to timber sales on the Tongass. So it's not like logging is gonna take place from day one, but what we're seeing is that more acres are now available. And um, we know that the acres that the timber industry is eager to get at are some of the most um, uh, productive in terms of, of uh, wildlife habitat and salmon spawning um, streams. And, and those are the acres that are gonna be targeted first. Uh, so for us, this is about uh, mitigating uh, future impacts to the forest and mitigating future impacts to Southeast Alaska's, uh, the regional economy here that 26% of the economy really drives uh, on tourism and uh, fishing. And so with the global pandemic, we've seen both the tourism industry take a pretty big hit as well as the fishing industry um, this past year. So now these two industries not only have to deal with the global pandemic and the immediate impacts of the pandemic, but now they have to start figuring out, okay, well, what do these um, future protection rollbacks, how are those gonna impact the economy and how do we adjust? You know, tourists don't come here to see clear cuts and fishermen need salmon to have quality spawning streams in order to provide, you know, the, the Tongass is responsible for a quarter of the, uh, in the US uh, Pacific salmon that goes to market. So 25% of the salmon that goes to market spawns in the Tongass. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things that these, that there's potential impacts that um, might not happen immediately, but could drastically change the economy and the way people live here in Southeast Alaska. This next question um, is probably gonna be a little bit more difficult to answer, but looking at the issue from the other side, what might be their viewpoint on like the positive impacts of opening it up? Yeah, so um, the arguments we hear a lot is that the rule, this rule restricts um, development. Uh, but earlier I said the rule, this rule is really well designed and uh, there's a lot of falsehoods perpetuated by the Alaska delegation and our governor that you know, renewable energy projects can't move forward, mineral leasing can't move forward, um, hydroelectricity can't be moved forward, intertie projects can't be moved forward, uh, roads for community access can't be moved forward, and none of that's true. The rule, this rule is well designed in that it has a lot of exemptions built in place to allow communities to develop and um, move these projects forward. So for example, since the rule, this rule, has been in place from, from 2001, 57 exemptions have been approved. And 57 exemptions happens to be 100% of the requests made. So 100% of the requests to the US Forest Service to do a development project in the roadless areas have been um, approved. Uh, so that's one argument you hear a lot, but the facts don't really align with that. The other argument is that, well, 
we, we need to support the timber industry. But the idea here is the timber industry is not what it used to be. Uh, the timber industry is less than 1% of the jobs in Southeast Alaska. And so by propping up a timber industry that's less than 1% of the jobs, you're potentially hurting 26% of the jobs uh, by hurting the tourism and fishing industry. So, you know, those are the two main arguments that people will make, but, but the facts don't really align with that. Uh, the last one I'll, I'll, I'll mention is the Alaska delegation and uh, the governor in the state really make arguments, well, we want more control of these lands, but these lands are still federal lands, they're still public lands. Um, and the fact that these exemptions are being approved shows that by being federal lands and by being protected by the realness rule, there really aren't any inhibitors that the realness rule is putting in place that won't be in place uh, without the protections, except for the fact that now that the protections are removed, you can, you'll see the timber industry start moving into some of these critical old, old growth uh, uh, stands to do industrial scale old growth clear cut logging. When the news broke, how did it make you feel? Could you describe your concerns or apprehension about it? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was frustration. I think, uh, you know, there was this public process that took two years and you had nearly, I don't know, over a quarter of a million people weigh in with public comments. And in the final environmental impact statement, the Forest Service basically acknowledged that the process was inherently political and it was in the secretary's right to weight the state's consideration much higher than, than the public's. And throughout that process, you also saw Alaska Natives' voices be um, extremely ignored. Uh, so I think it was, it was, it was kind of, my reaction was, I'm not surprised, but it was ultimately frustration in how unfair the process was and how um, you had the public and the people of Southeast Alaska pour two years of giving input and turning out to in-person meetings and writing comments um, and talking with their elected officials and, and uh, e emailing the, the Trump administration and, and Secretary Purdue, and to be totally ignored, that's a frustrating experience. So moving forward, again, it's, it's, it's unfortunately something, it wasn't that surprising, but, you know, SIAC is so frustrated that we are prepared to do everything in our power to ensure uh, roadless rule protections are reinstated on the Tongass National Forest. And that includes litigation. And, and that's the, the immediate step we, we began taking um, when we found out was immediately sitting down with lawyers and starting to develop our legal strategy. Now that the Tongass is open for industry, what kind of economic impact can we expect? Yeah, so I talked about that a little bit briefly with um, kind of the unknown long long-term impacts to the tourism and, and um, fishing industries, right? So immediate impacts, probably not going to see much, but as we see these protections um, continue to be removed and more 
access and acres are available for the timber industry to come in and do industrial scale old growth clear cut logging, that's when you'll begin to see impacts to Southeast Alaska's economy. You know, tourists are gonna be less interested to come in, uh, visit these areas or recreate in these areas. No one wants to hike through a clear cut. That's, that's not a scenic value that people hold. And, uh, you know, when you start looking at the salmon industry and you start looking at the potential impacts that um, logging can have on salmon spawning streams and how that ties to the catch rates, that's where you'll start seeing economic impacts. Um, and this is why the, you know, commercial fishermen have been very outspoken and, and small uh, tourism operators have also been very outspoken uh, because small locally owned tourism operators, they they depend on the interest of people uh, coming here to have an experience of an intact temperate rainforest. And with large uh, industrial scale old growth clear cut logging, that's gonna be a less of a reality for, for for our visitors to come in and see an intact Tongass rainforest. So, so you, 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 that's why throughout the process, you really had tourism operators and commercial fishermen really speaking out in favor of keeping this rule protections on the Tongass. In this next interview, at me senior producer Quinn White talks with Robert Venables, the executive director for Southeast Conference. They spoke on March 1st, 2021. Can you tell me what the Tongass forest represents for you? Well, it's our front yard, it's our backyard. You know, it is uh, a lot of things to us uh, here in Southeast. The, the Tongass really uh, encompasses about 33 communities in the region. And what's unique is that unlike any other part of the, the country, uh, almost the entire region is owned by one federal entity or public entity. Over 96% of the entire land in Southeast Alaska is uh, in, in public control. So it's very little private land. So. Uh, having access to the resources in the Tongass is very important to the region. What do you think of the Tongass forest recently being exempt from the roadless rule? Well, it, it's all about definitions, right? The The boogeyman is that somehow the, the timber industry is the focal point of that decision. And with this administrative rule set aside that somehow there's going to be millions and millions of acres uh, suddenly at risk and clear-cutted and the reality is that that couldn't be any further from the truth. Uh, there's very very little timber that's going to be, uh, be harvested underneath this. What this does is really recognize that the cookie-cutter approach towards forest management really does not serve the Tongass well. And I think that's really what we hope to focus on is not even using those words roadless rule, but taking a look at what are the management needs in the forest? How, how does that multi-use forest um, get managed to the highest and best use so that 
you know, the energy needs are met, the, the community needs are met, the cultural needs are met. Um, how do how do we you know take a look at the, the the fisheries industry that happens within the Tongass, the the mining, the tourism? You know, timber is is really uh, almost an afterthought for all the other uses that need to happen that are that are often hampered by this uh, obsession with the one tool that really does not even apply to what our needs are. If you were to take a look at the roadless rule itself and the genesis of that, it really is interesting to see that Alaska was doing roadless rule implementation well before anywhere else in the nation. I think really that's where that national rule, as they call it, really came from, was the focus on how the Tongass was being managed. There was a lot of development within the other forests in the lower 48, and it was recognized that that pace of development uh, was putting forests at risk. That certainly does not apply to Alaska, especially after Congress uh, two or three times had done intensive set-asides in forest management. And if you take a look at, you know, what, you know, the rest of the nation's net effect is after the application of the roadless rule in their states, you know, it's a set aside of, um, you know, somewhere around, you know, 30, 40 percent, perhaps at, at best. Um, and you see that in Alaska, that percentages, you know, double that easily. So it's it's really an apples and oranges uh issue that really is, is a political football that goes back and forth and something that we're hopeful that we can set aside that um, rancorous dialogue and, and just take a look at what are the what are the needs and objectives to um, to how we manage manage the forest. Can you tell me what the short-term goals and the long-term goals for the Tongass are? Well I think that really cuts to the quick because there is no real well-defined embrace long-term plan for the Tongass for any of the sectors and so I think really what we want to see on the short term is the fact that uh, we really do need to have a long-term plan that would provide more certainty for all of our sectors uh, even the timber you know maybe it takes 100 150 years to grow back those those trees that were cut down to have the characteristics that are, are sought for in the market. Um, you know, w there needs to be a set aside for, yes, this area is an appropriate acreage for the timber industry, and that's how it's going to be managed. You take a look at uh, the tourism needs that need to happen, the recreational needs that need to happen, and you say, okay, this is the way we're going to provide access long term so the industry can have certainty and manage its own growth and use, uh, respecting the, the cultural and community needs that each of the communities have instead of having a cookie-cutter approach. I think there's um, a, a lot of need for some good collaboration. And we got really close to that, I thought, um, in kicking off those discussions when we went through this process of the, the Alaska-specific roadless rule. Uh, there was a, a good uh, citizens advisory committee that really was reflective of the many different needs in the Tongass. And having that type of sit down and discussion about what some of the options could be uh, 
I thought was very productive. And there was a lot of suggestions brought forward. Unfortunately, they were not uh, adopted in the in the current consideration. How do people in your industry feel about the Tongass being exempt from the roadless rule? And what do you mean by industry? I have a note here that the mission of the Southeast Conference is to undertake and support activities that promote strong economies, healthy communities, and a quality environment in Southeast Alaska. So considering the mission of your organization, how do people feel about the Tongass being exempt? There's a lot of feelings out there, and I, I do not want to be dismissive of any of them. And I think that's why we don't represent any single industry. We take a look at the broad mission that we have to make sure that our communities are healthy, our economy is healthy, and our environment is healthy. And so taking a balanced approach, we think that there is a, a way forward to manage the the Tongass in a way that allows uh, each of those goals to be done without sacrificing uh, the quality that any of them reflect. So you have to be cognizant that, that there are very distinct needs that some communities have that um, you know do not integrate well with some industries but there's you know over 17 million acres here so there's there's room for uh, pretty much each sector to be able to find its niche but the forest service needs to be able to have the the, the local authority to understand the local scene understand what the regional needs are and have that reflected into the national policy. So it's it's easier said than done, but it is important, especially since you don't know where energy resources are going to be. You know, there there has to be, you know, access available to be able to not only construct hydros, which are as environmentally friendly and renewable as you can get in a rainforest like the Tongass, and be able to you know, transmit that power to communities. And so that's a completely different need set than what you might find in, in tourism or even fisheries. So I think that the lesson is there's, we need to get away from the all or nothing approach that's been going on for the last couple of decades, just all of this, none of that, and really take a more um, collaborative approach towards finding some middle ground. Speaking towards kind of identifying the needs in the region. What is the local perception and feeling towards this issue? Well, you, you know, the, the local perceptions have really been fueled by a lot of misinformation. So it's easy to go onto the street and get a lot of local feeling. But I think one of the things that we really wanted to challenge through this process was having good transparency and having good information. And that's simply did not exist uh, at the volume that some of the misinformation was being shouted at. So I think we have to look deeper than just what some of the, you know, on the street impressions are. We can't dismiss them. We want to, we want to make sure that we take the time to, to hear because even wrong impressions are fueled by um, passions that are held by a, a belief system that is, is worth to consider and to uh, integrate into the, the, you know, the policy decision. So it just needs to go more than the superficial discussions that have been had this past uh, round that I was witness to anyway.
Can you kind of walk me through the positive and negative impacts to the Tongass when the industry, when, or when industry opens up? Well, again, I, I, I'm a little baffled by the use of the term industry because tourism is an industry. So if you're referring to when tourism returns and opens up, um, you know, I think that those are, those are industry needs that are very unique that we need to make sure that the people that come to the region have opportunities to not only just see it as they float by, but access it in a controlled and appropriate manner. So I think that's, that happens on a couple different scales. It happens on an institutional scale when there's large buses that go out to see the glacier. It happens on a very small ecologically um, uh, focused manner with uh, some of your you know, small group excursions, whether it's by boat or by plane, they all have different needs. Um, there's different industry needs when it comes to energy, where where you find a, a perched lake that has great potential to provide hydropower for communities. So as that uh, industry re-engages and those needs are, are um, trying to be met, access there is completely different. Uh, if you're talking about industry such as mining, um, you can't predict where those mineralization uh, spots are, so you have to be able to access that in an um, environmentally friendly but economically sane uh, approach. And so there's a lot of different industry uses that have to be considered, um, you know, especially as we emerge from the pandemic. What economic impact will that have on small communities in the region? Well, I think it, it offers a lot of opportunities. Uh, I think a number of communities are, are wanting to explore economic opportunities that include visitors from outside of their community, which is the definition of tourism, right? Whether they're from Alaska or from outside of Alaska, but the scale that that happens needs to be set by those communities. So the economic impacts, um, you know, are, are variable. You have communities like Angoon that has you know very limited ecotourism opportunity uh, uh, ongoing operations but there's an opportunity for that to grow at a pace that they should be setting and on the other hand you have a community like Huna who has uh, constructed docks to accommodate the large cruise ships so you have a different scale there that that community has has set and embraced so there's again, I think one of the, um, the the fallacies of policymakers has been to try to do this all or nothing approach that says, this is what needs to happen in the Tongass period. And if you don't like it, talk to somebody in Washington, DC. And that just really has, has failed the region and really I think tied the hands of the good people uh, in Southeast that work at the Forest Service trying to meet all the different needs that come across their desk. Sure. So um, another ATME producer interviewed Dan Cannon, who was a former Tongass Forest Program Manager at the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. And he said that the long-term effect of opening up the Tongass would negatively impact the economy of Southeast Alaska, which includes hunting, fishing, and tourism. And I'm curious to know what your opinion is on that. Well, that sounds like a very global statement that has very little definition. So I, I cannot comment on 
how 17 million acres can be categorized in that short sentence. So I, th I think, again, uh, really there, there needs to be a collaborative approach. You take the, the, the right representatives from different stakeholder groups and you work with the Forest Service and the states and communities, the industries, and you figure out a way to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, you really, you take a look at the last, you know, hundred years of, of growth and uh, in our in our region, this region is not exploding in any economic sector. I think mining is doing uh, the best because of the price of minerals right now, but um, I don't suppose uh, anyone you've talked to has indicated what industry would rapidly increase its footprint and miraculously create jobs and devastation across the Tongass. Because I'm not I'm not aware of any industry that is uh, is poised to uh, accelerate its industry footprint in the absence of the Rothers rule. It's just there's no direct link there that I've seen. So I'm 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 curious to know what, what that might be. Um, another question that I've um, was meaning to ask are what are some of the um, Alaska Native perceptions about the issue and how um, how does this affect Native Alaskan communities? Well, I think um, that that is an issue that has to be recognized. The the fact is there are I think seventeen or eighteen tribes in Southeast Alaska, and their you know their communities need to be respected, and their needs around their community needs to be respected. So. They need to have a seat at that table and, and make sure that the policy is uh, is appropriate for you know their region. I, I don't. I would never want to speak for them or even about them to any uh, deep extent. That's their story to tell, um, and I'm sure they they each have their distinct needs and viewpoints. But I can tell you that uh, we really support having them at the table to make sure those decisions are reflective of what their needs are. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of the Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Teen Media is based in Anchorage, and we would like to acknowledge the Denina people, whose lands we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including John O'Hara and James McCoy. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. Another easy way to help out is by rating, subscribing, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Sam Bernitz.